Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. No matter where your travels take you, Get Your Guide offers the best way to connect with your destination. Choose from over 100,000 travel experiences in the U.S. and around the world with Get Your Guide. Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and it's Monday, the day of each week that we read back messages from the Stuff to Blow Your Mind email address. If you have never gotten in touch with us before, why not give it a shot? You can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Whatever kind of message you want to send is uh, is welcome. We sort of always prioritize feedback to recent episodes, especially if you've got something interesting you'd like to add to a topic we talked about. But whatever it is, send it on in. Okay, I'm going to kick things off with a response to our couple of episodes about pouring oil over the water. This was a series on uh, the idea that that oil poured over the top of the sea would calm the waves and how that sounds rather unbelievable. But there actually is some truth to it to a limited extent. But uh, yeah, it, interesting phenomenon. And this is also the one where we got into the stories of Benjamin Franklin walking around with a hollow cane and pouring oil in people's ponds. Matt says, hey, guys, I was just listening to your first oil and troubled waters episode, and I thought I would share some of the things that came to mind while listening. During the episode, it seemed to be implied that given time, oil would simply spread to cover the entire surface of water that it was poured into. But this isn't the case. As may come as no surprise, oil and water don't like to interact with each other, so much so that they will actively position themselves in such a way to minimize the area where the oil uh, contacts the water. 
so far as gravity, buoyancy, surface tension, etc. will allow. As an example, if you put a small drop of oil into water, the oil will turn into a small bead as close to a sphere as the aforementioned factors will allow. This is specifically because a sphere provides the smallest possible surface area for a given volume, thus minimizing the interface between the oil and the water. Now, something I think is pretty cool that happens at the point of interface is the water actually forms what amounts to a one atom thick layer of ice. This is because the water molecules really want to form hydrogen bonds, but this isn't possible with the oils, and, in overly simplified terms, it has to double down on the bonds with the other water molecules around it, forming into a structure like you would normally find in ice. Oh, that's interesting, Matt. I had no idea. Matt says, I studied molecular biology, and these thoughts also reminded me of how the same kind of effect of oil clumping together to minimize contact with water also affects how proteins fold and become relatively stable in their intended structure. You see, proteins are made up of segments that are either hydrophilic, meaning they like water, or hydrophobic, meaning they don't like water. And the same physics that causes the oil to clump also causes the hydrophobic segments to bury themselves in the protein structure away from the water surrounding it and leaving the hydrophilic segments on the outside. It sometimes takes uh, some trial and error to help to get there, but proteins use this to form and maintain their most stable structure and the one that allows them to function. Thanks for providing such breadth and depth in so many topics to keep us entertained and educated, Matt. Well, thank you for the insight, Matt. And that was really interesting about the one molecule thick uh, layer of ice at the interface. I ne never read or heard anything about that. But uh, yeah, I guess it would be good to clarify what is happening with the oil and the water. And it is interesting that we get these seemingly opposite reactions because you can observe it like if you dump a drop of oil into water and it sinks, uh, if it sinks, it will form this spherical ball that will float within the water, eventually rising to the surface, uh, and the oil will be trying to cling to itself and repel contact with the water, which is why it forms a sphere like that. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't want to mix with the water. But conversely, like we talked about in, in these two episodes, some oils, when they float on top of the water, end up spreading out to form a film that is one molecule thick. Why exactly does that happen? What's going on at the molecular level? Uh, well, I was just digging through some chemistry textbooks <laughs> to try to find the answer to this, make sure I understood before commenting. And I think I've got it figured out. So first of all, not all oils will spread out over the water's surface like this. For example, paraffin oils, uh, like kerosene, will not spread out evenly on top of the water, while most vegetable oils, uh, the commonly used example in the experiments we've talked about was pure olive oil, uh, they do spread out to form the monolayer. So what makes the difference? Well, I found uh, part of an answer in a book called Physical Chemistry, Experimental and Theoretical by Gordon Van Prague. This is Cambridge University Press, 1950. And Van Prague uh, clarifies that, quote, substances whose molecules contain water-soluble groups, such as COOH and CH2OH, etc., and then a parenthetical, long-chain acids and alcohols, will spread into surface films on water. So uh, according to this source, it is large oil molecules that have some kind of water-attracted arm somewhere on them, somewhere on the molecule. So if you 
picture a molecule sort of like a tree, one branch of that molecule tree is water-soluble. And this type of arm on the molecule structure that has its own reactive tendencies is called a group or a functional group in chemistry. So in oils with this particular structure, what happens? Well, I found more elaboration that helped clarify it in uh, another book, this time a, a physics book by Eric M. Rogers called Physics for the Inquiring Mind, The Methods, Nature, and Philosophy of Physical Science. This is Princeton University Press, 2011. So Rogers is in the middle of talking about the experiments of Lord Rayleigh, which we uh, brought up in those episodes. And speaking of Lord Rayleigh, he says he pictured a spreading drop of oil as a huddle of molecules tumbling and crawling over each other till each reached the water surface and could hitch one end to water. For these oils have long chain molecules with a water liking chemical group at one end. Once all the oil molecules are thus attached, they should keep together in a monomolecular carpet, showing little tendency to spread more. With just enough oil for a given water surface, the layer would be one molecule thick, with the molecules packed close and upright, like the pile of velvet. Hmm. With less oil, patches of open water should be revealed. With more oil, there should be excess puddles on the water, as on a greasy soup. So I think that clarifies the answer. First of all, whether or not the oil spreads out to become one molecule thick on the surface of water depends on the type of oil. It is oil molecules with a water-soluble group somewhere on them uh, that, that do this, and it happens because they all line up so that the water-attracted arm of the molecule is pointed down at the water, and the unattracted mass of the molecule is pointing up away from the water, and they arrange themselves in a single massive sheet layer all oriented in the same way like this hmm. all right all right that's that's illuminating we still don't know exactly what kind of oil benjamin franklin had in his cane though i think it was olive oil you think so yeah i mean it would it would make the most sense right and if what if your cane were to leak uh, unexpectedly what kind of oil would you want to have to deal with i mean obviously olive oil is not that bad can you imagine how gross it would be to have a cane that just leaks oil sometimes? <laughs> like you're out walking and it, oh, it's coming out again. Oh, I got oil all over my hand. Oh, boy. <laughs> you go give somebody a greasy handshake. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, let's uh, turn to some of our listener mails concerning um, our recent episodes about anomalous photos and those photos' possible connections to uh, ancient aliens. Um, uh, ancient civilizations or anything else you want to connect to them. If you're new to the show, to clarify, meaning that some people thought that and we don't. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so it's made for a good discussion across three episodes. Uh, anyway, Mark writes in and says... Hi, guys. I'm listening to your episodes on enigmatic objects in photos this week. I like your take on walking through the debunking of these types of photos. The whole low-resolution theory on how these photos become misunderstood is great. Something that came to mind was that I don't even really need to know anything about a particular photo, sighting, etc., to know that aliens haven't visited us. That's because I think most people hugely underestimate the level of technology required to take an interstellar trip. Not to say that interstellar travel is impossible, just that it is very, very hard. As humans, we're used to 
failing at spaceflight. We've seen so many rocket crashes, satellite deorbits, and media about crashing your spaceship on an alien moon. The thing is, we as humans are just really bad at spaceflight at this point in our history. We take this bias into how we imagine aliens might interact with spaceflight, as if it might be common that they would crash or be seen without wanting to be seen. The level of technology required to literally compress space in front of your spaceship so that you can get from star to star in anything less than an eon is absolutely massive. I've seen estimates that it would require something on the order of all the energy contained in Jupiter's mass to be able to achieve such a thing even for a short time. Aliens with that kind of technology will have mastered the physical world. They won't be crashing in Roswell, leaving alien corpses. They won't be placing visible beacons on our seafloor. They won't be, whoopsie, we turned on our headlights too bright and a fighter jet saw us. Those are human-like errors that we expect but aren't realistic. We will either see them because they want us to see or we won't see them. That paired with the fact that Many, many scientists dedicate their entire lives to detecting alien life with the most sophisticated technology we have and haven't come up with anything yet. It makes any testimony these supposed alien experts give to Congress ridiculous and unbelievable, in my opinion, even without knowing anything more than how the universe works on a physical level. Keep up the great work, Mark. P.S. Here is a photo of my friend on our recent road trip through Roswell. We went to Carlsbad, New Mexico to visit the caverns there, and they were absolutely life-changingly interesting. Some intriguing history on cave exploring comes from there, too. Might be worth looking into as an episode topic. Oh, man, yeah, the history of cave exploration, I think it could be a great subject for us. Uh, but I do want to comment on your, your photo here of your friend posing next to, is this like a statue of an alien installed about 10 feet from the door of a McDonald's? That's McDonald's, right? <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't recognize the branding there. Uh, so does the alien statue belong to the McDonald's or is this a public monument somehow situated in a McDonald's parking lot? I don't know. Oh, that QPC, that stands for a quarter pounder with cheese, right? This has to be, this is a Burger King, right? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it could be something else. I, I saw McDonald's because I see like red and yellow. That's McDonald's colors, isn't it? I guess. I don't know. I mean, we're as confused as the aliens at this point. If this alien does belong to the McDonald's, does, does do they just have like a lax corporate policy about what kind of things franchise owners can put in the parking lot? Could you put a statue of a T-Rex in a McDonald's parking lot? I mean, my guess is it's kind of like the different, uh, you know, public statues that you see um, endorsed by various cities where like this is part of our identity now. And therefore, everyone who wants an alien statue in front of their business can have one. Paint okay. it how you like. You got the bronze fawns. You got the RoboCop. You got the... Uh, <laughs> You got the McDonald's alien, the quarter pounder alien. Yeah. But uh, anyway, sorry to come back to the substance of your message, Mark. I'm kind of of two minds about this. On one hand, the points you make are things that I'm sympathetic to. And I used to be much more firmly in the camp of, you know, travel between stars is so difficult. Uh, that should massively weight our our starting, 
I don't know what you call it, the starting probability of us uh, entertaining ideas of alien visitation should weight that very low because that's so difficult. Now I've kind of come around that I, I don't think it's any more likely that we actually have been visited by aliens, but I just don't place as much emphasis on that kind of reasoning about the difficulty of traveling between stars because that's sort of another one of those questions like the... You know, I can't understand how they could have done the work inside the pyramids without leaving lamp black. Uh, so they must have had electric lights. Uh, it, it's to be fair to you, it's not quite that bad, but it is. It is sort of in that zone of I can't see how someone could have done this. Therefore, it's very unlikely. Uh, you know, I I would allow that. There's just lots of things we don't understand. But on the other hand, I do see a kind of I do see your point about the incongruity of like the level of competence required to travel between stars, have an interstellar civilization and visit the Earth, but then also just be crashing all the time and, and showing up on, you know, appearing in the side view of a jet fighter pilot's vision. It, it, that does seem kind of incongruous. Yeah, the, the whole idea that like, oh, we got a warehouse full of them. We just been rounding them up. Um, every time there's a wreck, we throw it, throw it into the warehouse. I don't know. I mean, it, I, I, as, as far as like the vast distances and times involved in all of this, I mean, it, it certainly adds to the contemplation. Uh, like when I, when I sort of do any kind of like navel gazing and, um, stargazing and, you know, thinking about humanity and some other possible, um, intelligent life out there with the, the technology to move around and, and visit us, you know, I mean, you, you end up thinking about like, well, what does it mean for a civilization to have that kind of technology, to have that kind of travel, that kind of reach, to perhaps have to deal with very long periods of time, uh, to have to deal with perhaps uh, a movement towards the inorganic. I mean, there are just so many... There, you know, there's so, so many ideas about what such a civilization might be like, and it's all built along around, you know, guesses and, and best guesses based on what we think life could be elsewhere in the universe. So, uh, I mean, it's, I love thinking about it, but it's, it's really hard to come to any kind of, uh, you know, firm conclusion. I, I agree. I mean, I, I do love speculating about this kind of stuff, but when it comes down to judging what really has happened or not, I guess I think it's fair to be humble about the limitations of our imagination, you know, uh, us yeah. just trying to speculate about what aliens could or couldn't do. I, I don't know that there's that it's that fruitful, but uh, uh, then to come back on the other hand, like I have similar thoughts, Mark. I mean, like one is how come. Uh, how come like we're seeing saucers all the time, but there is like absolutely no radio frequency communication at all? That that seems like a really strange uh, kind of mismatch there. Like, wouldn't we be more likely to pick up radio frequency communications uh, or some kind of signal of some kind and not be seeing spaceships? <laughs> yeah. But then you can easily say, well, they don't want you to. They're using a different bandwidth or something that, that we just don't have access to. Uh, but then again, then you get into almost religious uh, level where you know, it's like, well, of course you can't detect God. And then the answer is, well, if God is moving within the physical world, then there must be like a footprint. There must be some sort of sign that uh, that, that God has interacted with, with a physics-based world. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know. You can just run around in circles with all of this. Well, yeah, actually, this is a good comparison, because while I would say that 
I don't think you can use science to prove that a god does not exist. You can use science to prove that the Shroud of Turin is a medieval forgery. Mm -hmm. um, and likewise with like UFOs, I don't think we have any way of saying like aliens don't exist or that you can know with certainty that they've never been here. But you can look at the supposed individual pieces of evidence and claims people make about it and say like, yeah, this is not convincing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you can again, you can spend all day thinking about this this sort of thing, and, and there's so many ways to spin it. You know, some of some of the the ways of thinking about it involve casting humanity as the most interesting thing that an interstellar civilization could come across. But I, you know, maybe we should think of ourselves if if each planet that uh, has life and is observable to some hypothetical alien is like a television channel, perhaps. We are not um, like peak MTV. Perhaps we are C-SPAN. And, um, you know, and, and that kind of lines up with the idea that, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about there being anything privileged about the human viewpoint of the cosmos or human identity. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe we're just only marginally interesting, maybe important at the end of the day, but, you know, not the kind of thing you give a lot of attention to. But anyway, thanks again, Mark, for getting in touch. Uh, interesting thoughts. And I, once again, I appreciate the idea about the history of cave exploration. I think we could come back mm -hmm. to that. Absolutely. Hey, good people. This is Laia. Now, for years, we have celebrated Women's History Month at QLS with a month of very special programming. This year, we have three Grammy Award-winning ladies, Brittany Howard, Corinne Bailey Ray, and Lettucey. All three of these artists make music and write songs that fit many genres, and each will be discussing new songs and albums. We also have the incomparable, incredible queen of dance, Fatima Robinson, who has won NAACP Image Awards, choreographed the Oscars, the Grammys, your favorite Gap ad, and Super Bowls. You know her from her work with Beyonce, Mary J. Blige, and of course, Aaliyah, and most recently, The Color Purple. Celebrate women's history with us at Questlove Supreme every week in March. Listen to QLS on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart, and we're back with a new season of my podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal, with more entrepreneurs, more trailblazers, more live events, more Martha, and more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Walter Isaacson, about the geniuses who changed the world. Encore Jane, about creating a billion-dollar startup. Dr. Elisa Pressman, about the five basic strategies to help parents raise good humans. Florence Fabricant, about the authenticity in the world of food writing. Be sure to tune in to season two of the Martha Stewart podcast. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, uh, we got another response to our episode on the Eltanen antenna. Uh, This is from Chris. Chris says, Dear Robert and Joe, after listening to your recent episode on the Altanen antenna, the point you were making about uh, you were making regarding low quality data being used to make extraordinary claims is well received and indeed a common problem in the larger community of UFO enthusiasts. In the episode, this con- uh, concept is introduced by mentioning the recent UFO hearings by the Congressional Oversight Committee. Uh, this is something that happened in the United States Congress. If you're not up to speed, basically, there was whistleblower testimony that included claims from one whistleblower uh, that essentially amounted to this guy saying that other people in the government had told him that the government was in possession of crashed alien spacecraft and uh, and alien bodies and had been using that technology to reverse engineer uh, other types of technology. And I think we were just saying, like, eh, you know, remain open minded. But at this point, it's just it's a guy saying other people told him something. So I, I would reserve judgment until any actual solid evidence is presented. So coming back to Chris's message, while it is an aside from the main concept you were discussing, this investigation is important for multiple reasons unrelated to extraterrestrial non-human intelligence, and it's worrisome that aliens are a reason people are tuning out. The primary concern of the whistleblowers, Grush et al., is that the is that government spending is occurring on technological research and development is occurring without congressional oversight, contrary to mandates in the Constitution. It is against the law for whistleblowers to release their information and evidence to the public, which is the reason the hearing is taking place. It introduces the problem so that laws can be introduced to allow whistleblowers to bring forth their evidence and not be immediately arrested for leaking classified information. Matters of pilot safety and the failure to declassify documents to the public as required are also center stage. Bills have already been introduced by the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and may be worth a read for those interested, but I wanted to point out one particular section per the, quote, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Disclosure Act of 2023, uh, and then Chris includes a link. This is something that would require the disclosure, if such existed, of recovered technologies of unknown origin and biological evidence of non-human intelligence, uh, and then the I guess the first uh, item or statute from it, uh, exercise of eminent domain. The federal government shall exercise eminent domain over any and all uh, recovered technologies of unknown origin and biological evidence of non-human intelligence that may be controlled by private persons or entities in the interests of the public good. Uh, And then back to Chris's um, message here. Regardless of aliens, we might look back in history and consider how certain laws regarding matters of national security are interpreted and enforced. Even if UAPs are not real or aliens are not visiting us, if this law passes, it may have very important use to the U.S. government. With the correct broad interpretation, perhaps this law could be used to force companies doing business on U.S. soil to turn over any AI developed by a foreign government or by another generative or self-improving AI system, which may be Mm -hmm considered to be a non-human intelligence. A non-human intelligence may simply be, quote, any AI, chatbot, etc., regardless of actual levels of intelligence or ability. We might imagine further legislation in the near future that also allows the same eminent domain of non-human intelligence regardless of source. 
I think this phrase will be very important in future legislation and used to ensure that the U.S. government can take over any AI system of sufficient capability or concern. Best regards, Chris. Mm, that's a lot to think about. Uh, that's an interesting point uh, regarding the idea that the the real purpose of the uh, of the testimony is to try to force uh, government agents to disclose any knowledge they have of uh, uh, any knowledge and any evidence they have of contact with aliens, alien technology, alien bodies, whatever. Uh, I feel like this is something where I I hope like skeptics and UFO enthusiasts can be on the same page about because, I mean, obviously, I think if the government had alien bodies and alien ships and all that, they should be open about that. I would be in favor of transparency. Uh, you know, I, you know, nobody with good faith wants a cover up. A at the same time, I think I would acknowledge that while we're probably on the same page about that, if they don't actually possess anything like that, which I think is probably what's most likely the case, um, then all they could say is, well, we don't actually have anything like that, weren't able to find it, in which case the UFO enthusiast can always just say, you know, aha, see, the cover-up continues. So, I don't know, uh, that's tricky, but I certainly do favor transparency. I feel like I've seen enough science fiction and horror and read enough science fiction and horror, though, that I can think of numerous scenarios in which I would be like, okay, cover up, great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> the truth is too horrible. Like, yeah, I'm not even going to gonna spitball any, uh, any of the ideas here. But, you know, you can just think of various scenarios in which like, oh, oh, it's much worse than we thought. The public is just better off not knowing this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wonder if there's like kind of snow crash type scenario where knowledge of the aliens entails like the activation of a virus in our brains that would just cause all of our heads to melt or something. Yeah. yeah. Or um, it's just, you know, some Lovecraftian uh, revelation about the, the nature of the outer cosmos and it's just too much to bear or it's just like, you know, it's instant event horizon territory to, to really know what's up. Uh, I don't know. I, I can think of scenarios. <laughs> I can dream up scenarios of varying degrees of ridiculousness that uh, that make a cover up sound like a good idea. Well, event horizon scenarios aside, we will need eyes to see where we're going. And so I do think transparency is is by and large good. So we can we can agree on that. If, if there actually is evidence, I do want it revealed. Yes, I, I will agree. Transparency is good. But I have various um, anxiety ridden um, caveats to that. <laughs> Regarding your other point about this, uh, this kind of legislation having secondary effects about other types of, quote, intelligence like AI, uh, I mean, in, in one sense, I think, well, that's interesting, and I, I appreciate those thoughts, though I would also think, like, uh, if we're going to have a legislation like that, I would prefer it to be, like, really targeted at that so that, like, there's no ambiguity in how the law should be interpreted, like, you know, we, we should have very clear, well thought out, targeted uh, regulations of the development of AI, not trying to, like, use a law meant for something else to kind of, like, wiggle over into that space, too, be my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Like, we need to have you know, clear laws that deal with AI and you shouldn't have to uh, have it all hinge on a broad interpretation of a UFO act. <laughs> But finally, to come back to your original point and, and, and again on the agreement, if the truth is out there, I, I want it revealed. Yeah, bring it on. 
All right. At this point, I think we have time for just one listener mail from the Weird House Cinema category. So I'm just going to read a I'm going to read a quick one here. This one comes to us from Adrian. Adrian writes, hey, guys, love the show. Just listen to your episode on the Chronicles of Riddick. I love the Riddick universe. I just wanted to ask how you mentioned the actor Colm Fior and some of his movies, but you didn't mention how he had a prominent role in the movie Titus, which you mentioned in a Weird House Cinema a couple of weeks ago. Sorry, I forget which episode. After you brought up Titus, I found it on eBay and acquired it. Watched it three days ago. That would be a great movie to feature on Weird House. I haven't seen Titus in many years, but I remember loving it. Uh, that's uh, the one directed by Julie Taymor that has mm-hmm. uh, Anthony Hopkins as as the title character as Titus. But it, that's also got a great cast all around. It's got uh, Jessica Lange. It's got uh, Alan Cumming as the villain as uh, Emperor Saturnine. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a good one. Uh, though it's it it is. Uh, you know, weirdly, it's a weird thing to caution about a Shakespeare play, but it is incredibly violent. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, it's also uh, interesting, kind of a historical note that uh, the co- one of the co-executive producers on it was Steve Bannon. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's odd. Yeah. But but still, yes, a very um, beautifully, weirdly rendered film. I, I, I hadn't been thinking about Titus specifically, but I have now and again thought we should do a weird adaptation of Shakespeare at some point or another. Uh, there, there are so many, there's so many good ones, you know, there's so many weird takes on Shakespeare. Some I like, some I don't like, uh, but there's always something worth talking about there. I would be very into that. So, Hey, Shakespeare fans, uh, let us know what your favorite weird adaptations of Shakespeare are, and we'll throw them in the hat for consideration. That's a great idea. I, I do like Shakespeare that has, um, kind of, cheeky anachronisms in it though from what i recall the anachronisms in uh Tamor's titus are mainly in the framing narrative like at the beginning it's showing like a, a a young child sort of like playing with toy soldiers and stuff and this represents the battle that sets up the the plot uh in which you know at the beginning of the story titus is coming home victorious from a military campaign with prisoners of war including the uh, tamara the queen of the goths i think and that's uh that that's jessica lang's character but after that, while it is a very great looking and, and visually striking kind of uh, at least like texturally weird movie, it is mostly, I think, set within a an ancient Roman milieu. It, it doesn't have weird technology running all around. There is another Shakespeare adaptation that I do remember being anachronistic in a way that I liked, which is the, uh, oh, what's it? Uh, the, the Ian McKellen version of Richard the third where oh, he, yes. he, he plays Richard the third and it's got, uh, Jim Broadbent as Buckingham. That's a really good one. Yeah. I, uh, I, I was fond of that one back in the day, but it's set in like a world war one kind mm-hmm. of context. Yeah. Yeah. That one's, that one's great. Uh, there are various adaptations of Macbeth that I love. I mean, I love the old 71 Macbeth. Um, I'm a, I, I of course love Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. And uh, oh, yeah. even uh, the more recent one, uh, Joel Cohen's uh, 2021 adaptation, The Tragedy of Macbeth, is is wonderful and has some tr- tremendously weird choices in it. I haven't seen that yet. I should have. I love Frances McDormand. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great in it. Everybody's great. Wonderful cast. Wonderful weird cast, that one, because you also have you, you have some expected names 
uh, popping up. But then you also have like Brian Thompson showing up as one of the murderers mm. um, who some many of you would remember from. He's been in a lot of B movies. But, uh, he played Shao Kahn in one of the live action <laughs> Mortal Kombat films, a big muscle guy. He's not the kind of fellow earlier on in his career that you would have thought, oh, this guy's doing Shakespeare at some point. But he's, he's a small role, but he's great in it. You weak, pathetic fools. Your souls are mine. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, he was also one of the punks in uh, The Terminator. Okay, I got to see that now. All right, well, we're going to go and close up the mailbag now. But yeah, write in. We'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts on past, current, and future episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Weird House Cinema, Artifact, Monster Fact, other episodes of Listener Mail. It's all fair game. Uh, yeah, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Next Listener Mail will occur on the next Monday in the cycle. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.